Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Proverbs 31, 10 through 12 and 30 say this, An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is in vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What does it mean to be a girl? How do girls become women? How might books shape girls into women? Last week, we discussed the first half of Miss Ellie Mummy's 10 books girls should read before they are 21 list. This week, we are back to discuss the second half of the list. Now, something occurred to me as I was pondering these lists. Just because, for example, you recommend these books for girls, that does not mean that boys should not read them too, right? I mean, in other words, our listeners should not think of these as boy books or girl books, but instead that you are bringing these books forward in each of our lists that we have discussed thus far as having something important to teach boys with your previous list and girls with your current list. Would you say that is accurate? Yeah, I definitely would. I would say that these books I went back and forth about because I think they are very important for both boys and for girls, but I am pulling from them for the specific list because I think girls can take a lesson from these books that are specific to girls, whereas with the boys list, there were lessons that you learn as a boy from reading those books that are unique. And you'll see those and appreciate them if you are a girl reading the boy list, but you'll appreciate them in these are these are good lessons for men. Like, this is what I want men to be like. This is what I would like in a boy. That These are things that I see as being a good steward of your vocations as boys in those scenarios. You'll pick up on some of those things as well for girls, but there's really things that you can lean into with these lists for the gender I assign them to. But certainly, actually, one of my biggest recommendations, and something I'll say in the article, is that if you are a boy and you read through your whole boy list, because it's only 10 books and you have till you're 21, so that's a, a long time. Right. Your next thing should be to then read through the girls list. So I would hope that people would be able to, depending upon when they started, get through both before they turn 21. And that would be fantastic especially with some of the books on this list. One in particular, I think all boys should read before they're 21 if they can. But I actually mean for these lists to get read by both. And I think as soon as you finish with the boys list, you start on the girls list or vice versa. So I actually, it's very crucial that you read both. Absolutely. That sounds fantastic. If for nothing else, women don't think like men, and men don't think like women. And so if these books can give, as they are, you know, the, the boy books are 
or the the books on the boys list, the hope is that they would guide boys on their journey to becoming men. And because girls don't experience that, reading those books gives them insight into what's going on with these boys. And as as you mentioned, having it affirmed, perhaps, for girls as they read the the books that are are teaching boys what is it to be a man and what are the the characteristics and and virtues to which men should aspire and and which they should have that girls would look at that and say okay that's my standard for the man I want to marry and to be affirmed that it's okay to have a standard, right? Absolutely. And I think doing that and reading and becoming acquainted with those standards and with that process of going from boy to man, even just so that you can see where a guy is at in that process and encourage him along if he's kind of stuck in the middle somewhere, because you'll be able to identify a little bit better what he's maybe struggling with and where he's at. And that's the other thing I think is really important about reading the other genders list is that we, when we are young and we are looking for a potential spouse, we tend to be idealistic. And these lists do a great job of portraying for you what some of the very common things that boys struggle with are and what girls struggle with are so that you're not just going to automatically come into that scenario and be really harsh. And you can be a better support system to say, okay, I'm going to support this person who knows that this thing is something that they're struggling with and that they need to improve upon or get better. And they're frustrated with themselves for not doing it. That's very different than the standard of saying they need to think this is wrong. And if they don't think it's wrong, I don't want to deal with it. And I think that's something that reading these helps with is that you can look and see, oh, he's still currently in the Huck Finn stage of life right? to walk through to here and I can help push him. I mean, you see in Tom Sawyer, a girl helps push Tom farther than Huck's stage. And so you have that ability to do that, but you understand better how to approach it and what to do if you've got the books as kind of resources. Absolutely. And having those conversations, especially, Lord willing, when young men and women have the opportunity to get to know each other better in pursuit of marriage, hopefully, these are great opportunities to spark conversation about these things, knowing that when we get married, And when we live in relationship, whether that's husband-wife relationship, parent-child relationship, son-daughter-mother-father relationship, that we're sinners. And so we need to live in expectation of being sinned against and being willing to forgive. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's something that this showcases a lot. It shows you in your own list, things that you maybe need to work on that you don't want to admit to yourself that you need to work on, no matter how mature you think you are. And then it also teaches you the grace to forgive other people who are working on the same thing or are struggling with the same thing. And I really think that's one of the best and most beautiful benefits of reading and of literature in general, is that it gives you the opportunity to look at something from the outside in, and that often teaches you 
a form of compassion and understanding that you would not have for any given scenario, especially if they're hard scenarios or bad scenarios, if you hadn't read about it. And we actually have at least one book on this list, but actually I would say I can think of three of them on this list of the second half that do that really, really starkly. Well, then let's dive in with the second half of the list of 10 books every girl should read before she's 21. Take us through these books and why you encourage every girl to read these books. Sure. So the first book that we're discussing today is La Morte d'Arthur by Mallory. And that is a choice that was really easy for me to make even though it's such a good book for both genders. So kind of exactly what we've just been talking about. La Morte d'Arthur is King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and the Holy the Quest for the Holy Grail. But then you also have Tristan and Isolde in the middle of there. And so you have this strong woman in that. You have Guinevere. You have these women who come up all the time who are more complex than we currently like to slate them as just damsels in distress to get rescued by knights. They have very complex personalities. And it's such a good book for presenting to young ladies what young and adult society is like. I think it does a great job of portraying what the struggles and social kind of blunders of youthful adulthood so think unmarried or newly married adulthood are you get to see all these knights who are going about their lives rescuing damsels looking for a wife and you see these young ladies who are looking for husbands and there's a lot of drama for lack of a better word between them but you do just kind of see what it's like for those groups to interact with each other both as women to women and men to men and you see some great examples of what to do and some great examples of what not to do. And that I think is just fabulously done in the book while being one of the most engaging books you will ever read. And it's interesting just thinking about the female characters that there are also some less ideal women that are brought forth that perhaps we should not emulate. And it's pretty clear that we should not emulate. Correct. You also develop such a big sympathy for those women, which I think yeah. is fantastic. Because one of the things that becomes, I think, a stark reality for you when you grow up from being a child and thinking of childlike things to being an adult, even a very young adult in their teen years in high school who is now kind of wrestling with adult things, but without a lot of context or necessarily support. Like you're, you're just entering into the world of, I have to deal with all of this now. This is more complicated than I thought it was. That's, I think, a really big transition is going from, well, when I'm an adult, I'll have all these things figured out. I will, I'll know what to do in every scenario and it'll be great. Adults are put together. That's how this works. Because all the adults that you see have already passed through, that you see most closely, have often already passed through this kind of la morte stage of being those young people looking for relationships and having relationships to kind of dictate a lot of society. 
even while you're very busy with other things like doing quests and all of these things. They do a lot, but relationships are really hanging over everything. And you learn to have a lot more sympathy because things are complicated and there's always a whole bunch of context for why what happens happens. So I always think about Guinevere, who is such a complex character and such a kind of emotional character. You get drawn into Guinevere and you, it's, it's certainly not like you hate her, but there's this huge amount of complexity that builds up over a span of years in this book to cause what happens with her to happen. And you don't agree with it and you see why it's problematic. And you can see because you've watched her go through the years of groundwork to reach the conclusion and the actions that she makes, you see why it happens, but you also have so much compassion for her, which I think is really important because we can't condemn something so badly that we are unwilling to forgive our neighbors for them, that we're able to think that their sins are way greater than ours and somehow feel pride about it. And I think books really help with that because we, especially as women, can be quite comparative and say, well, at least I'm better than this. At least I, I don't, I'm not like that girl who's clearly going and doing these things she shouldn't. And we shouldn't do that. We should look at that girl and say, oh, there's a lot of complex reasoning behind this. How can I support them? How can I get them out of that scenario? Is there a way for me to just be the quiet example and friend of what you should do instead? And I think reading books about women who don't always make the right decisions is very important. And I think neglected right now. I think we often read too many fairy tales alone without allowing ourselves to have that complexity. And so I think especially Guinevere is really important. Whereas Isolde is less of a problematic hero, but still one that it's really fascinating to follow her throughout her story and see what it does to her and how she grows and adapts to everything that changes in her life. And so these books, this tale in particular, becomes both a tale of that which to emulate, but also a cautionary tale in terms of that which we should avoid. But if we're keeping our virtues and vices in in mind, or, you know, the Ten Commandments, we should be careful that neither are we coveting, nor are we speaking or thinking ill of our neighbor. Correct. I think it it gives you a better lens to look at the world the way it is with compassion, rather than looking at the world the way it is with only scorn and disgust. I think that that is very hard to learn, but I think reading about women in all positions in life is very important for that. And just thinking back to our previous episode in terms of the princess and how she carries herself, we then see that kind of played out even further. And we see the princesses become queens and how a princess perhaps carries herself differently than a queen carries herself. Yes. And I think that that 
is the other really beautiful thing specifically about this one is that you do learn a lot. We've, we talked about this, of course, with Penelope as well, but we learn a lot about how your actions do not only represent yourself, they represent others. And you learn that very well from Queens because they represent their whole country. And so they're trying to make their actions reflect well upon their country and bring honor to their people. And we would do well to think of that more. Not that we are all queens with our own thrones and people to rule over, but because we are all human beings and we have a family that we we reflect upon, even just by our last names. And you do this both as an unmarried young woman and then in a different way as a married young woman when you take on a new last name and so you're representing a family that wasn't originally yours that now you want to always bring honor to and be well reflective of. And then we're also children of God. And so you want to be able to reflect your faith well. You want to be representing and not bringing shame to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that that's a really great way to approach things. It's a heavier way to approach things unless you have learned about it and just realized oh, I should be careful about the way I present myself. I should be careful about how I represent these people because what I do does represent my family and does represent my faith. So I should keep that in mind. Not that any of these women are perfect at it, but they certainly have that in mind. And I think we too should have that in mind. Absolutely. The lessons in all of these books just seem to abound more and more as we get into them. And we certainly could spend an entire episode going more deeply into these books. But we should move on to our next book on our list. And that is Emma. Yes. So I knew I wanted a Jane Austen book on both the boys list and the girls list. And this was the obvious choice for me was Pride and Prejudice on the boys list and Emma on the girls list. And of course, those are very much books that everyone should read. But Emma teaches so much to young ladies. I know this exceptionally well. Growing up, of all of the Jane Austen heroines, it was certainly Emma that I most resembled. And that so much so that I have many friends who think fondly of me anytime they see an adaption of Emma or read Emma. They're just like, Ellie, this is you. And that's not necessarily a compliment, <laughs> you know, right. it really isn't, right. which is fine. But Emma is very much someone who is very immature at the beginning of the novel, even though she's an adult and even though she's in adult society, she's messing with things she shouldn't mess with. And she thinks too highly of herself and too simply of the world around her. She doesn't realize the complications of what she's doing and how she is throwing everyone around and kind of messing with the people in her life by playing with them. And, and that's very much, the whole point of Emma is that Emma is about Emma going from just in general, a young lady, like a young woman to being a lady in, in the proper sense of that. And that's a hard process. She goes through a lot of 
tough times and a lot of shock and frustration. But she learns from that what it means to be ladylike and what it means to be a grown woman in the most respectful form of that concept. So thinking about these two books in particular, these two Jane Austen books, we discussed Pride and Prejudice at length with Emma. How does Jane Austen bring forward women in particular differently than she does in Pride and Prejudice? I think Pride and Prejudice is a great story about a man and a woman getting to know each other and learning to see each other for who they are and sort of what we've been talking about, see each other for the flaws that they have and learning not to just dismiss each other, but to work through those flaws and support each other and all, all of the joy that comes with that. So it's very much about two people coming together and both growing together through coming together. That is not at all what Emma is about. Emma is not like getting to know a, a mysterious young man that comes to her house for the first time and she has to learn how to interact with him and she loves him and that's what motivates the book. It's not at all. Love does not motivate her book, at least in her own case. She does things because she thinks they're fun and she has these female friends and in many ways it's a book about women and their relationships with other women more so than it is their relationships with men. But I think Jane Austen is really putting a spotlight on the problems and the warning signs that there are with women and their friendships a lot of time. There are always going to be unhealthy friendships and just friendships that take away from your ability to be an actual mature adult who is a, a lady not just kind of passing through without a nod to those greater things that make you a lady. So I think Emma is a book that has all the romance you want and you learn about it, a lot about that. But it's more so in the case that Emma is caught up in these relationships with women and thinks too highly of herself and of those relationships because of that. And it is actually a man who rescues her from that and teaches her to be better. So it's very different. It's about her relationships with women and the people around her and the way that she learns to be more adult-like and more responsible is through the help of a man who loves her. And it's very different. So I think that's the huge difference. And that's why women really need to read Emma and learn from Emma. So when we are in relationship and you know i always keep going back to vocation but essentially what vocation does is it teaches us to die to ourselves for the sake of another do we see this in emma yeah and i think we also see the poor attempt at it because emma always I think thinks she's doing that but at the beginning of the book she thinks she's doing it out of a great skill set in herself she is 
using these wonderful skills and blessings and abilities that she has to benefit the people who are less than her or who who don't have those things. And so even though she thinks she's, you know, dying to herself and serving others, she's really kind of glorifying herself by serving others. And it's a small distinction, but it's very, very important. And she has to learn through the book to die to herself and just genuinely see what's better for others. And I think her relationship with Harriet Smith throughout the book best showcases this. She comes to a realization at one point that everything she thinks she has done for Harriet's greatest good is actually something that she really shouldn't have done and that Harriet would have been better off if she had not done any of those things to start. And that I think is a big thing is that you can be doing the same vocations that's still just serving your neighbors and being a good daughter and being a good host and being a great benefactor as someone with any sort of wealth. But if you're doing it in any sort of self-glorifying way, it turns the actions that you do sour and it makes you much, much less able to do those actions in a way that are actually beneficial and much easier to do them in a way that ends up being twisted and difficult, even if that's not your intent. Emma is not malicious. She just is frustratingly unable to see that what she's doing is childish and selfish. And so she does things in a way that affect a lot of people around her unnecessarily poorly because of that. So I think she does definitely grow into what an actual vocation is and what her actual calling is by the end of the book but it is a painstaking process. This book should be painful for you to read. And if it's not painful for you to read, I think you have to identify more with Emma. And that, again, I grew up being very close to Emma in my own mind and in the mind of others. And I learned vicariously through her what not to do so that I could avoid a lot of the mistakes that I probably would have made right alongside her if I hadn't known her as a character. It's interesting to ponder how Emma begins, that it points out right away that she has a most affectionate, indulgent father, and her mother had died too long ago for her to have more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses. How do you see that playing out in terms of this whole vocational picture in terms of relationship and the lack of relationship playing out in Emma's life moving forward? I certainly think it's a big influencer. Her father has made it very easy for Emma to be the way that she is at the beginning of this book because he doesn't chastise her. He's not going to look at Emma and say, Emma, you are meddling in other people's affairs. That is not a, okay. Right. He, look, he looks at Emma and says, you, sh- you should never do this because you're always right. And, you know, I'm afraid, I don't want to lose everyone we know because you've successfully set them up with everyone else. And, and his response is not, you should not do this, it's bad. It's, you always do this right. You've never messed up. 
And that is the opposite of helpful because it encourages her to do things sloppily or to, and to just do things that you are, can't be done well. And the lack of a mother is very important because I often think mothers and daughters have more of this ability in a relationship innately where mothers who have gone through that process themselves and clearly are going to understand female relationships better than a father is going to because he never went through them themselves. A mother should be able to look at you and say, that's not how you should act. Here's the correct way to, to act. And Emma doesn't have that older female guidance to give her the context of what it should be. She just has Miss Taylor, her governess, who isn't willing to do that with her either. And so it's this lack of people being willing to say, yes, this is a norm in the way that females are friends with each other. Yes, this is something that you have a skill at is trying to introduce people and get them to talk and get them to go out with each other. But you don't have the ability to actually decide what's right for them. And no one's willing to tell her that. So I think certainly with a mother, a mother is more likely to do that. Your own mother is going to be a great resource, even just because your own mom is not that different than you a lot of the times. I know I can be very similar to how my mother was when she was my age from talking to her and that she's been able multiple times to say, oh, I had I was friends with a girl that is was in a similar situation to this. This is how I handled it, either in a good way or in a bad way. And here's how you could handle it the same way, or here's how you could handle it better. She uses her knowledge to help me grow out of anything that she may have not known to do better or things that went really well for her because she knew how to approach them. So you need that with your mom because your mom understands female friendships and potentially is a similar enough personality to you that she may have found herself in similar situations when she was your age. So I think that's a relationship that's really crucial that Emma's lacking and we see that she's lacking it. Absolutely. I think that brings us pretty smoothly to the next book on our list. Yes. So this is the book that I said earlier when we were discussing whether these were boy books or girl books, I said that there was a book everyone should read before they turn 21. This is that book. I think Anna Karenina is one everyone should read before that time. This book is so important for young people to read because it is all about relationships and it is a direct contrast of a loving, faithful, and selfless relationship with a unfaithful, uh, adulterous, and selfish relationship. And you go through both relationships as if you are the person living them. The book walks you through both positions 100%. And you see what lack of, I don't know if lack of guidance is the correct term as much as just saying that your lack of willingness to accept guidance is. Because Anna is not without people to tell her what she should and shouldn't do. And neither is Kitty, the two women whose relationships we follow through the book most prominently. But Anna won't listen whatsoever to anyone's advice. She's going to do the thing that she wants to do and doesn't listen to anyone. And we see how that works out for her. 
And Kitty listens to people too much. She lets them just tell her what to do, even if she knows they're not the right decisions. And you get to see that contrast so well, which I think is a big part of the similarities in Emma and this book, is that you're seeing relationship-wise how to work. Emma is the book to read when you want to know how to interact with other women and how those friendships work. Anna Karenina is the book for when you're trying to figure out how to navigate romantic relationships and familial relationships and complex ones at that. And that's really a huge part of Anna Karenina. And Anna Karenina, I think, also challenges every assumption that you have about divorce and about adultery and about those specific sins and it will revolutionize the way that you view them it just it changes how you view them for the better so that's an interesting thought how how do the characters help form and shape how we might consider those things so the characters live through those things in an exceptionally real way. You have rejected proposals. You have married people receiving advances from unmarried people, sometimes even in the presence of their own husbands. Um, you have uh, out-of-wedlock childbirth. You have all of these things. And what it does is it guides you as a reader to realize the complexity of those sins. I think something that I see looking back on growing up from adolescence into early adulthood and adulthood as I am in it now is that we portray adultery and all sins of the sixth commandment as being really horrible. And, you know, that's really emphasized to young, confessional, traditional Christian backgrounds is the idea that breaking that commandment is not good. And I think it's sometimes hard to understand why, and we put this kind of stigma on it. When Aunt Karenina shows you exactly why, when you're a little kid and you lie about putting the dishes away, you're going to get in trouble for that. And then it's done. You're in trouble. You got caught. Everything's done. Okay, maybe you go to bed. You know, you get spanked and put to bed or whatever. You're going to get disciplined and then it's done. When you're committing a sin of adultery, it doesn't clean up like that. In fact, it has 800 pages worth of results from that, regardless of whether or not you are repentant or not. It complicates every aspect of your life and it's not reversible. You you can't just say, hey, I did this thing yesterday, but it was yesterday and we're good. It has consequences that you will deal with. And this book teaches you what they are, but it teaches you about them in a compassionate way. So you're not reading the book just disgusted with anyone who would commit the sin. You're going through it with just frustration and a anger on that person's behalf because you see a mistake that they make a sin that they commit that is now just wreaking havoc on everything that they had there's a scene about midway through the book that makes me cry every single time i read it 
because it is so heart-wrenching to see, okay, we have an established affair and all of these results of it. And then you get to this beautiful moment in the books that is tainted because of that. There's this moment that has the ability to be just the most beautiful, selfless act of love that that adultery tampers with. And you have a character who chooses to still lean on or or cling to that adulterous sin as the redeeming factor as, oh, well, my whole life has been turned upside down, but because I have this one person that I shouldn't have, it makes it worth it. Rather than saying, if I let go of the person I committed adultery with, my life might slowly be able to put itself back together. And this book just teaches you that. And you have these moments of in profound sorrow for the people who commit these sins. You're not turning your nose at them and crossing the street to not interact with them. You are there in the moment with them. So I think it teaches you to think about those sins differently. In the modern world, we all know someone who's divorced. We all know someone who's been cheated on, whether it's in a very, very visceral way or in just a, you know, I caught my high school boyfriend out for dinner with somebody else. Whether or not it's a very, very intense thing or just simply that breach of trust, this book teaches you to have so much compassion and to see just how messy that gets. And it teaches you then to keep an eye on it just because you're going to see how much it messes with everybody in your life. And the book still presents to you a beautiful story of love and forgiveness and of a relationship that is strong and healthy, and it gives you the tools for it. So this book shows you perhaps better than any other book, how a, a good and healthy relationship is to be and what a good marriage looks like. And that's what the whole book is about, right? The first sentence even implies that, and I'm not going to get it right word for word, but it's, you know, uh, every happy family is alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. It's, it's portraying for you what it is to have the beauty of a happy family, and then it's showing you how complex being an unhappy family is and how much plays into that and how important it is to have sympathy and love and compassion for those people or they're not going to come out of it. I think it's interesting how we get to know these characters not just on a surface level, but we really feel their emotion and we get inside of them and have insight on them that allows, as you were saying, for that level of compassion and being able to look at them and wrestle with the muddiness of the human condition, of sin. Forgiveness never removes the consequences of sin, but some sin the consequences, the the tentacles of that sin reach further and deeper and are more pernicious than other sins. Yes, and I think the thing that Anna Karenina taught me and that I understand much, much better now is that I think this sin 
is one of the first ones you get hit with most times as a young adult that has those more. There's so many of them that have long, complex kind of consequences to them, but it tends to be this one that's very temptful right away as a young, a young adult. And so you haven't seen those ones or gone through those ones that have long lasting circumstances yet. And so that's one of the reasons I think we really emphasize avoiding sins of the sixth commandment is that they have consequences and they are right there and ready for you to commit by the time you are a young adult. You have that all of a sudden understanding of like, well, here's this thing I'm really not supposed to do anything related to. And and you don't quite yet have the context of why it would be so bad for you to do it. It's a protective thing. We don't want you to have these consequences. So try very hard to avoid anything of this nature. And this book gives you the context to understand and appreciate that better and to see, oh, the reason I don't want to do this, yes, because it's sinful and it's bad, but because look at what this does as well. And I think that's, I mean, crucial to this. And really, this is why I say reading Russians is very important. Tolstoy is known for portraying daily life and life in general better than almost any author in the world. He's argued to be the best author in the world at doing so. He does not just summarize things for you because he knows that his point won't get across. You are going to read through Anna Karenina as though you are going through days and days and days with these people, as though you've lived them. There is a really famous chapter in this book, but it is just one continual kind of image and moment in the book where a character named Levin, who is a farmer from the south of Russia, he is a wheat farmer, and you have a full chapter that's just him threshing the wheat by hand with his people. And it's a whole chapter. You're going to read a whole chapter about someone threshing wheat, just the action of threshing wheat. And the brilliance of Tolstoy's writing means that you read that chapter and you kind of feel exhausted when you're done. Like you kind of feel like, oh, I need to lay down. I've just done a day's work to do this. But you're just reading about someone doing a day's work. And he puts you so much in there that you don't get to just summarize in one sentence. Oh, I heard about this girl. She had an affair and did this. Wonder what she's doing now. You don't get that. You don't get the luxury of that. You are going to live through this entire year span over many, many pages. It's why these books are so long. And the Russians do this often is they don't want you to get a surface level impression of these things that they're wrestling with in their books. Tolstoy wants you to live life with these characters for an extended period of time so that you see the circumstances and you go through the circumstances with them. And that is why this book is so good is because you, you live it. You don't, you don't get the luxury of just skimming over all the unpleasantries or all the misery. You're going to spend, you know, if someone's in bed for days because they're sick, you're going to be in bed with them for days, pondering all of the things that they think while they're laying awake in their fever dreams and all of that. You, you have to go through it because that's what life is. So he's portraying for you life in a very real way on a day-to-day basis, not just the highlights of it. And that I think is brilliant. And it, it teaches this lesson of marriage and family in a way you wouldn't get any other way because you wouldn't live it. Yeah, there is very much before our eyes the reality of the complexity 
of the ordinary that on the surface it's just a day-to-day -day life but if you peel back the layers there's so much going on and sometimes it would be good for us to realize that of our own lives, right? That the things we do and the decisions we make and the relationships that we have, there, there isn't a lack of complexity in those. And we shouldn't view them as though they are simple and mundane. So this, honestly, it just leads 100% perfectly into the next book. Perfect. This is all that the next book is about. So the next book is Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is a current author. He's still alive. He lives down in Kentucky. I think Hannah Coulter was published in the early 2000s. So it's probably a lesser known book for our listeners. It is all about this. I read Wendell Berry. I've read a lot of his poetry, which I highly encourage. But I read my first novel by him, which is Hannah Coulter, this past year in 2020. And it just changed or reinforced so many of the ways that I view life now that, that I think every woman needs to read. I think every man needs to read it, but every woman needs to read. The book is all about ordinary life. Hannah Coulter is about this woman, Hannah, who is probably in her 80s, 90s, I'm not sure what her age is, and she's just reflecting on and telling you the story of her life. So you're just hearing in retrospect what her life is like from Great Depression era when she's a little girl. And so you're hearing about her living through everything that's happened in the last 100 years, and you're just, you're just hearing about her everyday life. And, and you think, wow, that's boring. It's like a diary entry of this lady who just gets married and raises children and has this. But there's so much complexity. You're reading about Hannah living and running a farm in the Kentucky area with her husband, with children, with her community. Um, and it's a very faith-based book. So she is a Christian in the novel and there are many moments in the book where she references and remembers specifically the hymns that she would sing at a hard period. Like what, what is it like to go through World War II as a woman, as a wife, as a community that I think we just need to know because there is all this glory that we put on extraordinary lives. And you read Hannah Coulter and there's nothing you want more than Hannah's ordinary life, because she's able to show you the depth of an ordinary life. And she's able to teach you to view priorities differently. And the thing that I really think is most fundamentally shocking about Hannah Coulter to read now, I think if you could read a book this year for just our general audience, read it in the next few months, because it just hits you very differently in this era of pandemics and shutdowns and, you know, in, inability to see other people because the whole book is about community and reading about everyday people living through historic events like World War II 
gives you a better perspective on what we're doing right now and what we could maybe do better and what, what we are currently doing. And it's brilliant. It's so well done. And it complicates what we think in the modern world a good woman is. Hannah doesn't go to college. She's not super highly educated. She is a farm wife. She runs her farm with her husband and raises her children. And she even admits her own faults in retrospect of how she raises her kids and says, looking back now, I see that I pushed for this too much or that I think I thought that this was important when it might not be. And it teaches you what priorities there are. And I think, I think it reminds you that the, some of the best people to learn from as a young lady are your grandparents and are the people of that generation because they, they have lived through all of this and then some, and they have hindsight on their side. So you're reading an, uh, a book by an author who is in his 80s and who teaches you a lot about what life is like from that perspective. So I think it makes you think very differently about your grandparents. If you have family who farmed at any point, this book will be emotional for you. I, I cried multiple times reading this book because my family, my grandparents are farmers. My great aunts and uncles are farmers. And reading this book is like being at their farm with them again. And you see more of why that was appealing to them, why they did what they did. And so I think this book is important because it it is not glorifying everyday life or ordinary life, but it is portraying for you just why ordinary life is important and why glory and acclaim and fame offer you nothing. It's just showing you why you should never want more than an ordinary life because an ordinary life is a beautiful gift and just a great opportunity for you to live. And it has all those complexities and struggles and abilities for growth and to become better and better and more able to serve others as much as, if not more so, than a life of fame or reputation, like high reputation. And I think, I mean, it really is fundamentally life-changing in that regard. And just thinking about this, Luther really talked about that extensively. That was one of the things that he really brought forward. You know, we think of the Reformation, we think about maybe the theology of the Reformation or the educational changes that came out of the Reformation. But this whole idea of the ordinary being brought forward as extraordinary. God hides himself in the ordinary. Ordinary bread, ordinary wine, but it's amazing and it's extraordinary. And God also hides himself in the ordinary of a mother changing a diaper and a husband providing for his family in ordinary ways that the importance of celebrating the ordinary and realizing that the ordinary, as you said, is a good thing, is a gift. This is something we don't discuss often enough in our modern context. 
we're a very achievement and acclaim oriented society. And I've learned this more and more and more the, the older I've gotten to the point where now, as I am considering what I want to do moving forward, career wise, or just kind of skill set wise, there's just an absurd amount of pressure that we put on those things. It's a, you know, if I don't get some great, important, imp- impressive job, people are going to think I'm wasting the skills that I have. Like if I were to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, make food for people every day and that's my, I'm just going to cook, you know, whether it's as a waitress at a normal restaurant, people are going to look down on that. We tend to look down on the people who do that or the people who farm or the people who do any kind of trade work, like electrical work. That tends to be something where we're like, oh, they're the less educated. It's a weird sort of system that we have. Whereas, especially reading this book, you just look at it and you're like, you're physically putting food on people's tables. You're, you're keeping them warm in the winter. You're, you're doing these skills that are very literally benefiting the people in your community that you know, rather than the somewhat more abstract way of serving others that could be in a 20-story skyscraper building where you sign papers all the time and do things. You're still benefiting people, but in a much less tangible way. And there, why would we why would we look down on the people who choose to physically serve the people in their community and to know them and to have a sense of community with them? But we, we tend to do that now. And I think we just it's just because we've built a society that's very used to acclaim. And that, I think, is what a lot of what Hannah Coulter wrestles with as a character and as a book, is that she looks at the world and she says she's a simple farmer and she sees very few farming communities that live and interact with each other the same way that she grew up and lived in. And she just asks why, you know, how is this, how is it more beneficial to go and do this deep and profound thing than it is to just be in your community and grow food that people buy and eat and to show up at funerals for everyone in your community and be there to support them in their sorrow and to celebrate with them when they get married or they have a baby or any of those things. And she just kind of, as a character, can't understand why that wouldn't be enough and why that isn't a fundamental and profound way to live. And one of the things that she wrestles with is that she worries that her generation has not taught that to to younger people enough, that those things aren't even just enough, they are more than enough to live a very full and a very happy life. And that's what I think is really brilliant about the book is that you watch Hannah in retrospect telling you about her life and her complications and her struggles, and you, you live through them with her, but you also see her saying, what did I do that I didn't teach my children or that we haven't been teaching society to think and value just literally knowing all your neighbors, just having a a physical community, benefiting the people that you know. It's kind of a question of how did we lack the ability to teach younger generations just to serve their literal neighbor who's physically in front of them? Because that's kind of what she's wrestling with. I think it's brilliantly done. It also questions the way that we approach education. She, She really does look with the eyes of someone who grew up in a different society that prioritized different things, she questions all of the things that we assume now. Education, vocation, 
relationships in family, what, what marriage should look like, those things are just different and to her because she comes from a different time and she just looks at it and it makes you double check your assumptions about all of those things because what she's saying makes sense. There's something beautiful about the gift of being available, right? And I think that sometimes we have lost that or abandoned that. I saw that. And certainly when I saw this in my grandparents, they were retired. They had more time, you know, all of these sorts of things. But I saw that in them, this gift of being available, that people would drop in and have conversation. And grandma always had cookies somewhere that she would get out and serve when people would just randomly drop by. But bringing up this whole being available to go to funerals and being available for a sick child and being available to stand out in the driveway and talk to the neighbor. This gift of availability is such a precious thing that we've really given away, it seems. Yes. And honestly, one of the most beautiful things that was circumstantial, actually, about me finishing Hannah Coulter was the day that I finished Hannah Coulter was a day I actually ran an errand to go and pick up something from my great aunt at her farmhouse for my grandpa. And my grandfather and his siblings all lived within a mile of each other on farm sites one of which is the farm site they grew up on. And they just farmed. They very much had that community in the way that Hannah Coulter is. And I had to go and pick something up from my great aunt. And so I went and drove, you know, an hour out there to get to the farm site that I hadn't been to since my grandpa no longer lives on the farm, that I hadn't been out in that direction in a while. And so I went, I'm not even this person's grandchild, but I called them in advance and said, hey, I'm going to swing out here and hang out. And as soon as I got there, it was very much a, oh, do you have time to sit down? Let's have coffee and let's chat. And what we talked about was the community, this, this physical place that my grandparents and their family lived in and all of the people there. I still know their names. I know all of the neighbors' names. And while I was physically there, the pastor of their church called her and said, hey, this person passed away. Do you know who they are? Because she's lived there for 90 years. She knows everyone. She is the resource that that community needs is, oh, this woman has been here for 90 years in the same spot, like hasn't even moved a half mile her whole entire life. She is this wealth of information that absolutely nobody else could have. We don't, we don't have that nowadays. And it was very striking to read to be reading a book that is a fictionalization of the exact kind of community my grandfather lived in and some of my family members still live in and then to physically be to go back to that community and ask questions because i think we often also in the modern world look at the elderly and we think oh they're very simple and they don't understand modern times and they're not up with the times so they're you know they don't know what they don't know what to say about this 
But then you go and sit in these people's houses and I'm like, you've lived for 90 years. You know way more than I do. Even if you, you know, if you haven't read all the books I've read, you haven't, you know, gotten the education I've done or had the experience as a job that I have, you are so much more educated than I am. And you approach these things with a wisdom, you approach everything with a wisdom I don't have. And I would do much better to have that discourse and to keep that relationship strong because I will learn more like years and years beyond my own age from spending that time with them. And that I think is a great other thing about Hannah Coulter is that reading Hannah Coulter will make you want to get to know your grandparents better or living relatives. You'll be like, no, I, I want to know enough about them that when I'm 90, I can sit down and write it, my own account of, of my community and actually know these people's names and remember their details because my grandparents can do that. They, they can all just be like, well, when I was in grade school, here were my classmates. This is where they all are now. I know all of this, despite the fact I don't use the internet. So I think that's a really cool skill that you also learn is this community and this respect for your elders, where you're more willing to sit at their feet again and to just ask them their advice and to listen to what they want to talk about, because it reminds you of what is actually important. When we want to think of all the things we think are important in our generation, you need to actually just slow down and realize that the 90-year-old probably knows what's important more than you do. So speaking of important things, I think that transitions well to the final book on your list on immunity and inoculation. Yes. So this is a book. It's actually a creative nonfiction book by Eula Biss. I think it was a Pulitzer Prize winner in like 2005. It's a very new book, very different in tone than the rest of the books on this list, but it's absolutely brilliant. And I think is also something that is incredibly relevant to this last year or so in everybody's life, but it's also just revolutionizes the way that you see community. On Immunity is, as I said, a creative nonfiction account of this woman, Eula Biss's experience with going through the results of having her first child. So she goes through, not in, you know, horrifying detail or kind of detail that would make you uncomfortable as a woman who hasn't given birth, but kind of just talks in a very relative way about how she had a difficult birth. And so she had to have, you know, transfusions and she had to have all these extra medical scenarios around surrounding the birth of her first child. And so she just kind of talks about what it's like to go through that mentally. And then she talks about how that experience makes her incredibly obsessed with the concept of vaccines. So the whole book is about immunity and the ability of being able to be immune and have a vaccine and not be able to catch a virus or get sick, which seems very relevant nowadays. But the brilliant thing about the book is that she's not, it's not a book that's meant to be super pro-vaccination or anti-vaccination. So it's, I think it's a great book for people of either background. I think it's totally understandable that there are people from both backgrounds. This book does a great job for both of them in discussing vaccines because the purpose of the book is to teach you that immunity is false. 
we, we are sinful people. We live in a world where everyone is going to die. You as a parent cannot make your child so immune that they will never have any health issue in their life ever. And it's a brilliant way to approach this is it's her using these really creative examples. So she actually talks at the very first page of the book. And this is also the cover of the book. She talks about how this conversation of immunity and the conversation of vaccines and the ability to receive immunity originates in Achilles, Achilles' mom, who tries to dip him in the river sticks to make him completely immortal. She's like, we've been doing this forever. And what did we learn from Achilles' mom? You can't do it. There's always going to be an Achilles heel. You cannot perfectly do this. And, and so this book is her using these classic and literary references in a creative way to walk you through her obsession as a young mother with finding a way to make sure nothing would ever happen to her child and learning very quickly what it, what it means that you can't ever save anyone in your life from ever having something go wrong. Like you, you just can't do that. So I think this book is a very brilliant and very important to, to every young woman to read because young women aren't nurturing. They, they want to take care of the people around them. And especially when they have kids, they really, they care about that person's well-being more than anything else in the world. And she walks you from an obsession with that in an unhealthy way towards an understanding and an, and an acceptance of reality, which is that your children will get sick, that, that you can make the best decision you can make in the moment, but that you will never have all the information no matter what you do. And that you can't become so obsessed with making your child bulletproof that you forget that no one is. So I think it's a brilliant thing. And it is, I mean, the references that it makes are fantastic. Achilles comes up a lot. Actually, Dracula and vampires come up a lot. And she just does a great job of talking about that as someone without a scientific background. So she's not preaching to you of the way that you do this is by giving your children vaccines or by not giving your children vaccines. She is just writing as a mother saying, this is a rabbit hole that I went down pretty much basically as soon as my son was born and comparing it to the literary heroes and the characters that I grew up with. This is what I've come to realize about immunity and what it means to live in a world where we think we can make people perfectly immune to everything, but we can't. And here's, here's the balance. Here's where your mental balance should be for your own sanity. So I love that it is all about science from a non-scientific person. And this is potentially one of the greatest challenges we face right now in our day is that on some level, we want to eliminate death. And this is something, especially as you pointed out, for mothers, our every fiber wants to nurture and protect and care and build up and give life, right? I mean, this is what mothers do. They give life and we we cannot even within that we cannot protect our children or our husbands or our parents or our grandparents we can't protect them from death because the wages of sin is death 
Yep. And I think that's really great about this book. And she's not even coming, I believe, from a Christian background, but she kind of just talks about the inevitability of death. And therefore, I guess, honestly, the most brilliant thing about this book in the context of what it is, is that she tries very hard to teach you that your motivation for what you do and for how you make these decisions cannot be fear. And that living a life of fear that, you know, oh, if I don't give them this, they're going to get the disease and die. Or if I do give them this, they're going to develop side effects and then they're going to die. She was like, you will spiral into insanity as a parent if you motivate everything you do out of fear of making the wrong decision. You have to, as a parent, make the best decision you can in the moment and live with the consequences of that decision regardless of what they are. And this this just, I think, is brilliant. And it teaches you a lot about how to look at life, especially as Christians. We should not be living our lives so completely obsessed with fear of dying because that we know what comes after death and it's not a bad thing. So we need to live our lives doing the best that we can, but not just being so incredibly paranoid about death that we, we, we can't make decisions in any other way. And she talks a little bit about this. A lot of the books I've been reading lately are talking about how culture, especially American culture, are adverse to death, but a lot of Western culture as well. They kind of hide death away and we don't talk about it. And so we do start to think we have this immunity where if we just do things right, none of us will die and we'll all be perfectly healthy all the time. And that's been a very fascinating thing to read and then have an international pandemic breakout because we don't, as a society, know how to handle that because we don't usually talk about it. And that I think is brilliantly done. And so I'm very glad I read this book before any of the pandemic stuff happened. And then I think I kind of finished it honestly on like March 13th, 14th, like that week that everything shut down. And it was very weird because it was like a thing that set my opinion for this entire past year was, Oh, am I living my life motivated out of fear or am I living my life out of compassion for other people and out of just doing the best that I can for other people whatever that is, and then living with the consequences of it. And I think that that's really important. And and like you said, especially for mothers who obviously are going to and should care more about their children's well-being than almost anything else, it's really important to remember that fear doesn't motivate you in a good way in this scenario. It's not going to do anything for you. Right. And for ourselves and all of those around us understanding and living the reality that if we spend all our time trying to avoid death, which is inevitable, as we know, then really on some level, we've ceased to live. Exactly. And she talks about that a lot. She kind of talks about how one of the big illusions that she uses is this idea of our children as Achilles and all of us as Achilles mom. But then also she talks a lot about herself as a vampire, which is wild. That's the main comparison she makes for herself as a human being in those first few years of her life. And I mean, it's brilliant. She talks about how in receiving blood transfusions after her own child's birth, it made her think of all the vampire stories she thought of when she was younger, where you need someone else's blood to survive. 
And then she talks about how she feels very vampire-like because life is getting sucked out of her, literally, as her child can live. And she talks all about this idea that we just don't talk about as, as a society. And it's really brilliantly done where you're looking at it as this inability when she just, she just spirals downward and you read about her spiral downward to the point where all she thinks about is her son's health. She's doing nothing else. This woman is a proficient, like, like is a profound writer. She's a profound thinker, but she's lost her ability to serve anybody else or to do anything else because she's so focused on this one thing, which is making her child immune to everything that she, she's doing nothing else. And this is her book about what it's like to come away from that and to realize that that's not serving your neighbor. That's not actually being the, the steward, good steward of that vocation and of her abilities that she could be. And I think that that's really brilliant. I will disclaimer about this book that I think, yes, you should read it before you're 21. My guess would be later in high school or in college would be an easier time to read it because she is, it is an essay. Creative nonfiction is always an essay. So she does pull from a lot of scientific studies that she did research on from a literary standpoint. So she's writing an essay where she says, you know, if you read this statistic, this is how many people receive vaccinations. This is how this. So there are a lot of facts in this book and you might not enjoy it or get as much out of it until you're later in high school or in college where this sort of thing would be more interesting to you. Um, It's not content wise going to shock anyone who's younger than that, but it might not interest them as much because they might not be dwelling on these concepts as much. But that's what she does. She talks to you about what it means to focus yourself so much on one issue that you lose sight of everything else and how easy it is to do that in this specific subject matter for an understandable reason, but how important it is not to do that. Miss Ellie Mummy teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition for Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.